Here we go. All right, welcome back. We are still in the middle of chapter one. Let's just review a little bit where we came from. It's called the breadcrumb trail. So we know, so we don't get lost. So we remember the whole trajectory of things. Um, to me, that's the main thing about Tanya, especially the first few hundred times you learn it. It's about the structure and about knowing the path, the trajectory, how we get to our goal. Uh, and then as you learn Tanya over and over and over again for the rest of your life, you can always delve back into the details. But it's important to understand the overall structure, uh, at least to begin with. So we were structuring this based on the, the Rebbe Rashab's statement that anyone who learns Tanya is having Yechidus with the Alter Rebbe. We were structuring this as like we're imagining different personal audiences with the Alter Rebbe. And we come into the first personal audience with the Alter Rebbe, and we know that we're asking for help, we're asking for guidance in our spiritual service. Of what nature? Well, more specifically that we're sort of frustrated with our own inconsistencies, and we're wondering what to do about that. So the first thing the al Rebbe does is he, he validates. He validates us. He says, it's a really legitimate struggle. Look, um, what are you? You know, you can't even figure out what you are because there's this weird uh, statement of our sages. I'm just reviewing chapter one right now. That before the soul even comes down to the world, he, the soul takes an oath. Be a tzaddik, don't be a rasha. I'm not going to translate the words tzaddik, rasha, benini because they are... Their definitions are so precise and particular to Tanya that it doesn't even really help to um, translate them. Um, anyway, so the, you, the soul takes this oath, be a tzaddik, don't be a rasha, even if the whole world tells you that you're a tzaddik, that you should think of yourself as a rasha, what's up with that? And, you know, we know that we're not supposed to think of ourselves as, as a rasha, and, 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 and that's not just uh, because it says alti rasha in, in, in the Mishnah, but also because Logically, I know what kind of damage that could do to somebody emotionally and uh, that would cause a downward spiral of uh, not serving Hashem B'Simcha, which could you know, lead to the worst things. On the other hand, if he says, okay, fine, don't worry, uh, I'm a Rosh and I don't care, well, then that's going to lead to uh, what he calls kalos, a cavalier attitude. So we know neither of those attitudes can be right, but then what are you supposed to do? How are you supposed to regard yourself? And we said, we're going to get into a whole long discussion about the five categories that are from the Talmud. Tzadik v'tevlei, tzadik v'raloi, rosh v'tevlei, rosh v'raloi, and benini. And we tried to put our finger on what exactly is this benini because, well, on one hand, Rabbah thought he was one, and we know he never sinned. Okay? So it can't be somebody who ever sinned. And uh, on the other hand, what is a tzaddik? A tzaddik, we know, is somebody who doesn't even have a yetzahara. Remember we said that at the end of last week. The David Melech killed his yetzahara through fasting. And, uh, in fa- and, and also the Medrash tells us tzaddikim are exceedingly rare. They're like, uh, there's a few of them in every generation that Hashem sort of spreads out through the timeline of history. So it's like, I'm not a tzaddik. But being a Bainini, I don't even think I'm a Bainini because of the level that you're describing a Bainini is like, at, at this point, a Bainini is indistinguishable from a Tzaddik. In fact, you even proved to me, using several Gemaras, that if someone does one Aveda, he's already a Russia, so he can't be a Bainini, right? So we're, we're a little bit confused about that, and we don't have clarity. But somehow this is going to be important 
in our having a more accurate self-concept. And, and really, if I could summarize what last week's class was about, you know, the first half of chapter one, it's an attempt to gain a more accurate spiritual self-concept. An attempt to clarify my standing and my status. Um, in, in, in that sense, you know, we're, we're, we're not even talking about instructions yet. We're not talking about do this, do that. We're really just talking about the real basics, which is who am I? And we're on a quest to, to figure that part out. And then we'll talk about you know, behaviors and about different ways of doing things. And we'll get a little bit more uh, instructional. But right now it's sort of like, you know, I, you know, in a way you could say philosophical, although it's not philosophical, it's very practical. But it's philosophical in as much as the question is, who am I? But it's not who am I, you know, just for fun. It's who am I like... <laughs> Uh, you have this you have this program called called Judaism, and I value it, and yet I'm not doing well at it very often, and you know it's causing me some distress. So who am I? Okay. So that's as far as we got last week. Now we still don't know what Tzadik Rashi are. We have some ideas about it, but we really don't know what they are, and we're not going to know yet in chapter one what they are. It's not going to be answered. It's not going to be answered in chapter one. We're going to continue now with a new piece of the puzzle. And it's a very important piece of the puzzle. In fact, you could say it may be the most essential concept in Tanya. I mean, I would nominate a few concepts as most essential concepts in Tanya, but this is definitely one of them. Okay, so we are at Achbir Ho'inyin. On the second page. Achbir ho'inyin. However, the explanation of the matter is. Alpi mashakosov harav chaim vital zal b'shara kedusho b'tzchaim sharnun perig base. According to what harav chaim vital wrote in Shara kedusha and in Eitzchayim, these are Volumes of Kisvei HaRizal. Kisvei HaRizal is a misnomer. Kisvei HaRizal means the writings of the Ari, but the Ari did not write them. Who wrote them? Chaim Vital. He was the scribe of the Ari. And uh, so Chaim Vital writes, that to every single Jew, whether he is a tzaddik and whether he is a Russia, meaning regardless of his spiritual status. It is across the board that he has, yesh, he has, shtei nishamas, two souls. Two souls. Ukedichsiv, like it says, he quotes a pasuk, and I created souls. It's talking about one person, but it's saying souls, plural. Shehein shtei nefashes, which are the two souls. This is going to become incredibly important, this idea of two souls. Remember I told you last week about Rivka, you're pregnant with twins. This, these are the twins. These are the twins. So we're about to meet the twins. Actually, we don't even meet both of the twins in this chapter. We just find out that there are twins, and now all of a sudden our inconsistencies start to sort of make sense. We're going to learn about 
one of the twins, a little bit, not even a lot, but a little bit here at the end of chapter one. Um, so I'm going to, this is called a spoiler, I'm going to tell you who the two twins are. There's the Nefeshabamis and the Nefeshalakis. Nefeshabamis means the animal soul. Nefeshalakis means the godly soul. By the way, he doesn't even call it Nefeshabamis here in the end of chapter one, even though that's the way we refer to it mostly in Chassidus. In chapter two, we will be introduced to the Nefeshalakis, to the godly soul. Chapter two begins with the introduction to, and it, and it focuses entirely on the, the, the godly soul. But here we're just going to talk about the animal soul. So let, let's, let's, find out, let's find out about this animal soul, which again, he does not call animal soul here in this chapter, even though that's the way we refer to it, that's the way it's referred to most commonly. Nefeshachas, one soul, mitzadeh klipa v'sitra achra, is from klipa and sitra achra. These are Kabbalistic terms. Klipa means shell or husk or hide or peel. Everything has a spark of godliness or it wouldn't exist. Some things just have that spark more concealed than others. So the klipa, the hide or the peel or the husk or the whatever, is the covering which obscures the innate godliness of anything. And when something is really, really uh, removed from its holy source, then it's said to be covered in a very coarse or thick klipa. So the whole realm of negativity is called klipa. It's very, it's very important to understand because really there's no duality, God forbid. There's only one source. It's only godliness. Only, the only question is how revealed or concealed it is. So the klipa is the concealment of the godliness. Um, it's also the term he uses here, sitra achra. Sitra achra is a term that we're going to speak about more in chapter 6, but it means the other side. It's Aramaic, comes from, uh, from Zayar. It means the other side. The other side meaning not the side of holiness. So the first soul that every single Jew has, he said, every single Jew has two souls, and the first one of them is from the Klippa and Sitra Achra. So you have a soul from the Klippa and the Sitra Achra. Vehi ha-mislabeshes bedam ha-odam You know where it is? You know, if, <laughs> how do you locate the physical uh, location of an energy? I mean, it's a soul. It's a nefesh. By the way, I don't, like, I don't even really like to translate nefesh as soul because it's a, not a very descriptive word. Call it a drive. I think that's, that's more helpful. Call it a drive. So a, a drive is an abstraction. Where is a drive? Yet it is invested in the medium of the blood and it's operative function is to maintain the vitality of the body. Now, it, it, it's a drive, meaning it has an agenda, it has a personality, it has goals, but its operative function is that it maintains vital functions. But it, it, it has, it has a, a personality. It is a personality. 
You understand? It's not just some uh, life force that, like you know, like you just plug a, a lamp into the to, into the wall and it lights up. I mean, it has an agenda. That agenda is very much coupled with maintaining vital functions because the agenda is basically self-preservation. In fact, maybe a helpful way in 2021 to describe this nefesh would be to call it the drive for self-preservation. But at this point, what is the Alta Rebbe telling us? He's telling us where it's located. It's in the blood. It's not blood. It's a soul, but it's in the blood. The medium that carries it or keeps it in the body, since it's a spiritual energy, what keeps it married to the physical body, it's through the, uh, the medium of the blood. Like it says, quotes a verse, The soul of flesh is in the blood. The soul of flesh, that's sort of like a paradox. I mean, those are opposites, soul and flesh. So the intermediary between soul and flesh is blood. Blood is physical, but it's, uh, it's, it's vitality, it's life. Umumeno, okay, now we're getting into its personality. So it doesn't just animate the body. It, yes, it animates the body. That's the most discernible effect of the presence of a nefesh is the physical life of the body. But that's not all. It has a personality. So let's talk about that. Umimeno, and from this soul, this nefesh, this drive, which is from Klippa and Sitra Achra, come forth all the negative character traits which correspond to the four elements which are in this nefesh. I'm not going to get into a whole lengthy elaboration on the idea of Dalad Yisaydes, the four elements, how are they different from the periodic uh, chart of elements. Obviously, those are different elements. When we speak about fire, air, water, earth as the four elements, we're not even talking about fire, air, water, and earth as we know them. We're talking about elemental fire, air, water, earth. Um, I saw a letter from the Rebbe in English to a scientist where he once explained it, and this seems to be a helpful way of talking about it, that, uh, that these, none of these are one-to-one -one, you know, uh, translations, but maybe a better way to convey to a Western-trained mind what is elemental fire, <laughs> elemental air, elemental water, elemental earth would be to compare it to the four states. Please ignore the flashing light. It, unless it's a safety concern, let's just ignore it. Is it a safety concern? But you know what? Ladies, can I tell you a secret? My whole life is full of annoying stimuli, which I tune out in order... I'm not, you, you, you th you're noticing this. Can I tell you something? The, the, but the concern with the thing, like, okay, 
Anyways, my entire life is one concerted effort not to break focus, which is why everyone thinks I'm rude. Because if you come to talk, everyone thinks I'm rude. They don't understand. It's, it's a handicap. When, but they do. But they do bother me. What? It bothered you. Okay, fine. So, anyways. Could I tell you how many different things there are going on in the room every single day that are equally as annoying as that flashing light, which I'm blocking out in order to maintain my train of thought? Mm -hmm. At any rate, okay. <sighs> Just by necessity. So, What were we talking about? Let's get back. Stay focused. Okay. 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 Ladies, I need hyper focus. Hyper focus. Okay. I need you to work as hard as I'm working. Actually, I heard a great principle in education once, and I think it's true, and I rarely achieve it, which is the best. The best learning is when the students are working harder than the teacher. It, it's, it's rare to achieve it, but when, when you do achieve it, it's always incredibly successful. Okay, so follow me here. I don't want to get into a side point about elemental fire, elemental air, elemental water, elemental earth. I don't want to get into a discussion about Neoplatonism. I, it's, it's not really the time or place. What I do want to tell you is... There is such a concept, it's a common thing, it comes up not just in Chassidus, it comes up in much of rabbinic literature. I saw a letter from the Lubavitcher Rebbe where he was explaining this to somebody in scientific terms. Obviously none of this is a one-to-one -one translation, but it may be helpful. I, this, is, this is where I, the light started flickering. I said it might be helpful to the Western-trained mind to think about it like this that it corresponds to four states of matter, which we refer to as plasma, gas, liquid, and solid. But what does that help you? I don't know. It just I'm only telling it to satisfy you in case it's going to bother you and you're not going to be able to concentrate on what we're learning. So anyways, it's called throwing a bone. Okay, anyways, there's something called Dalad Yisaydes. It's the four elements. Everything's made up of it, including this nefesh. When we say that this nefesh has a personality, that traits come from it, we can actually describe different traits of this drive as corresponding to the presence of different elements within that drive. Following? Yeah? No? The soul has four elements. Everything has four elements. The soul has a personality. That personality has different traits. Those different traits correspond to different elements. Made sense? Okay. Dahainu. Now he enumerates them. Now he enumerates them. Dahainu. Kasvagaivi meseda eishin nigbo lamaila. Anger and arrogance come from the elemental fire. Why? Because the nature of fire is to go upward. Don't hold a match from the top. Vitaivis hatainugim, the desire for pleasure, lust, miyaseida mayim, comes from elemental water. Kiyamayim matzmichim kolmine tainim, because water causes all delightful things to flourish. 
Vahelos Velaitsanus Vihisparus Udvaru Betelum Yaseid Aruach. And uh, frivolity and scoffing and bragging and uh, idle chatter come from the elemental air. You know, these are all things that are just a bunch of air. Va'atzlus, va'atzvos, and uh, laziness and depression, you say, the offer from elemental earth. Anyways, these are examples of negative character traits that derive from this nefesh. This nefesh of klipa and sitra achra. Anger and arrogance and lust and bragging and frivolity and scoffing and idle chatter and laziness and depression. I think I said all of them. So now you're getting a picture of this nefesh. Yeah, it keeps you alive which, you know, obviously is, is important. But it has a personality, and not all of its traits are such good traits, to say the least. So it controls your emotions? Hmm? It's mostly emotions. Well, uh, traits are emotional traits. These are, yeah. And if you want to be really precise, I wouldn't call them emotional traits. But we don't have a very uh, precise understanding yet of the term emotion. So I'm not going to be so, I'm not going to jump on that yet. As we progress, we will have a more precise understanding of what an emotion is. But call, maybe call these proclivities or tendencies. Wiring. Yeah, call it wiring, yeah. So they say the human body is like over 70% water. So yeah. 70% lust? <laughs> That's not the same water. What is the difference? I said I'm not going to get into what elemental uh, fire, earth, water. Okay. Anyways, like like this happens every class. That's why I. But it's not it's not the same thing. This is why I tried to. This is why I tried to bavor in this. We could get into a side conversation about the Dalit elements. The Dalit. Four elements, Dalit Yisaitis. See, listen, trust me with one thing. I know why most Tanya classes do not finish Tanya. Do you know that? It's a fact. Most Tanya classes do not finish Tanya. Not because it's a big book. It, the reason why is because people get sidetracked on these things like Dalit Yisaitis, which is fascinating, but what happens is, See, the book is a manual, but imagine you're reading a manual, how to put together, you buy a, a chair from Ikea, and you're, in the, you're reading the manual, how to put together the chair from Ikea, and as you're reading, um, you, you, you hit upon an interesting term, and then you have a discussion about that term all night, and you don't put together the chair. And the chair never gets built, and eventually you throw away the, the directions, and eventually you throw away the chair. So, that's why based on a lot of experience going through the book and, and guiding others through the book, I realized certain things I anticipate, I know, are things that people will enjoy in the moment, 
but will cause them not to come back the next week. Because they'll be like, what was practical about this? How did this enhance my life? How am I getting closer to, a, uh, to, a, to a, an understanding of myself? So that's why I even said at the beginning, let's not get into the four elements, because I know this is one of those danger areas where people get fascinated in the moment and then they disappear and they can't even pinpoint it. Trust me, I've had this experience. You ask people, why did you disappear? Why did you stop learning Tanya? And they'll say, oh, it was really interesting, but... And, and what I put together, what I realize happens is, if, if you don't keep coming back to the main thrust of the book, which is to address your personal spiritual development, you lose people. So anyways, don't worry about Dalad Yisaydais. And to answer your question, everybody's different. You've met different people who have different natures. Some people have more elemental fire. Some, you know, they have, they have more of a problem with anger. They don't have so much a problem with lust. Some people have more elemental earth. They have more of a problem with, with laziness. It's not so much uh, that they speak uh, idle chatter, right? So everybody's different. But the point is, all of us have these traits. And where do they come from? They come from this, what we call, soul of Klippa and Sitra Akhra. Okay, fine. Now, a little bit of a surprise here. A little bit of a surprise, a little bit of a twist. Vegam mides toives. Also good traits. Shibateva kol that are innate to Jews. Like compassion and kindness. Bo'es mimena come from it, from this very same soul. It's not all bad. It's not all bad. Yeah, we just said negative traits. But there are certain good traits that also come from this soul. Like, he says, traits that are considered to be innate to Jews. The Talmud tells us there are three signs of Jewish people. That, that they are bashonim rachmonim gemlechasodim. They are bashful, and you know that means like humble, and uh, compassionate, and kind. I mean, not to stereotype, but those, <laughs> but but it is, but those are. Um, those are characteristics that are universal to the Jewish people. The thing is, as you can understand here from context, these good traits are not the result of any type of um, selflessness or, or idealism. These good traits are, are inborn. They're instinctive. So just like you may have been born with a proclivity toward laziness, which is not such a great thing, okay, so you were also born with proclivity toward generosity, which is a good thing. But it's, it's just a natural proclivity. It's not to your credit. You didn't work on it. I mean, you can work on it and, and accentuate it, but I'm saying the, the, the built-in trait is just something that is there with this nefesh. It's just part and parcel of the, of the nefesh. 
Why is it that this nefesh has both bad traits and good traits? He explains. Kibi Yisrael, because for a Jewish person, nefesh zu de klipa, this soul of klipa, we said it's klipa, and I told you what klipa means, himi klipas noiga. Oh, here's a Kabbalistic term. It's not just any klipa, it's a specific klipa, it's klipas noiga. Sheyesh bo gamkein toiv, which also has good. Okay, what is klipas noiga, and why do we say it also has good? If a klipa is bad, why does it also have good? Klipas noiga literally means the glowing or shining klipa. The translucent husk. Why is it glowing? Because, remember I said that the klipa is concealing the spark of godliness. Obviously, none of the, I don't mean any of this physically. This is all spiritual. But the klipa could be opaque or the klipa could be translucent. When we say that the, the shell is shining, we mean that it is, not that it itself is iridescent, but it is translucent. It is allowing the spark of godliness to shine through. Okay, most things in the world are klipas noiga, like the cup of tea. It's neither holy nor profane. It's neutral. It's not holy, but if you make a bracha on it and you drink it and you use it to, to learn Torah, you could elevate it into holiness. So the spark is accessible and you can even see, I'm talking not talking physically obviously, but conceptually you can see how there's a spark of godliness that's accessible within it. The point is, that, what, I say something funny? I think Klipat Noga is a beautiful name for cosmetics. Shh, this is on YouTube. You're going to steal your idea. It's okay, I don't make cosmetics. You don't make cosmetics? You should, with that, that name, you should. That's I a, so. I like it. I like it too. You're going to have kiosks at every mall. Okay. <laughs> That's a great idea. Okay. You heard it here first. Okay, so most things in this world are klipas noiga. They're neither holy nor profane. Or I should say, they're not irredeemably profane. They're mundane. They're mundane. And they can be elevated. Why? Because, like he says, there's good and bad in it. Really, there's good in everything. But it's, in, in, in many cases, it's inaccessible. It's completely inaccessible. So effectively, there's no good in it. I mean, if, if something had no good in it, it wouldn't exist. But when the good is so covered in such an uh, impenetrable, impenetrable uh, klippa, then, then effectively, then there's no good in it. Then you have something where the klippa is, is uh, not such an obstruction, okay? So that's, that's what he says is the spiritual status of this nefesh. Yes, it's a, it's a nefesh which emanates from klipa or derives from klipa, but of the different kinds of klipa, it is klipas noiga. It's a, it's a klipa which has accessible good in it. And he elaborates. Um this is actually a, a, an outcome of the spiritual, mystical concept of the tree of, good of, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. 
Okay, again, not getting all, all sidetracked into a very deep Kabbalistic concept. Suffice it to say, at the beginning of time, when there was, um, you know, Adam and Eve in the garden and the tree and all that stuff, right? So good and evil were separate from each other. So it's pretty easy to navigate. Here's good, here's evil. The primary effect of the sin of the tree of knowledge of good, remember it was not just called the tree of knowledge, that's its nickname, a short name. It's called the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Tree of knowledge of good and evil, the primary effect that it had was to combine, to intermingle good and bad in everything. What does that mean, to intermingle good and bad in everything? What it means is that because of the, to use you know, like the quantum term, the conscious observer, the power of the human being is that the human being can perceive both moral and immoral uses in most everything. So is the knife good or bad? Depends how you use it. Uh, you know, you, 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 you're preparing dinner for your family or you, you're stabbing you know, the neighbor, right? Why the neighbor? I don't know. Because he, inter he interrupted while I was trying to prepare dinner. That's why. Okay. <laughs> what are you making over there? <laughs> okay. <laughs> I made dinner last night. And you know how hyper-focused I get when I, when I teach? I'm even worse when I'm cooking. You cannot talk to me. I'm just, it's like, it's very, oh yeah, no. Heaven help person knocks at the door while I'm, yeah, yeah. yeah. I have a few dishes that I make. So last night, yeah. Very, it was Kung Pao chicken. And yeah, and like when it gets to the end, where I'm adding the cornstarch to thicken it up, like, it's very intense. It's like, because you have to go fast, and if you go too slow, then it, like, globs up, and it's a very, yeah, very intense. Okay. So, anyways. Klipas Neiga is sort of the result of the sin of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, where you have good and bad mixed into things. By the way, the primary example... Again, I don't want to get sidetracked. The primary example of the, the, the mixing of good and evil, you know that after Adam and Eve sinned, or after they uh, were affected by this knowledge of good and evil, the first thing that they experienced was shame, sp specifically shame of their nakedness. Okay, that's when they all of a sudden lost their innocence and they wanted to be covered. They wanted to cover their reproductive organs. Primary example, quintessential example of the mixture of good and bad is th this, the human procreative urge. Like, is it good or is it bad? Well, <laughs> depends how you use it. It can be the, the, the holiest thing or the, the most profane thing. Okay? And the fact that it's commingled and you have to extract it and you have to sift it and you have to take out the good and leave the bad is, uh, you know, that's... Mostly what we're here doing since Adam and Eve is, is that process of, of refinement. Okay? But at any rate, what we're saying here is in us we have this energy called um, a nefesh, called a drive. It enlivens our bodies. It's, in, it's contained in the medium of the blood. It gives us all sorts of negative traits. But also because it's klipas noiga, it gives us all types of good traits as well that are innate to the Jew. Okay. Um, now, here's the controversial part. 
And, you know, I'm not going to try to suppress this. And the reason I'm not going to try to suppress it is, well, first of all, I think it's logical, and I hope I would have understood it on my own, but also because it's clearly what the Rebbe directed. Uh, they put out a, a bilingual Tanya, a Tanya that had Hebrew on one side and English on the other side. A lot of people are using So the, the first one was put up in, in England. And Zalman Jaffe was the one who led the project. And he actually asked the Rebbe if they should maybe not translate these few lines. They'll, they'll leave it in the Hebrew, but they won't translate it in the English. And, and the Rebbe said, you're going to make it seem much worse than it really is. Like, you know, <laughs> it's, nev what they, it's, it's never the scandal, it's the cover-up. Right, the cover-up right? the co the cover is worse than the crime. Right, so um, let's just delve into this. This is called the controversial part. This is what people call, I'm not going to mince words, this is what people call the racist part of Tanya. Um, it, I, I don't think it, it I, I don't think anybody who is understanding of what it's saying would call it racist. There's nothing racial about it. <laughs> it has nothing to do with race. By the way, what race is a Jew? What color is a Jew? Right? <laughs> so, yeah, Jewish identity is a metaphysical identity anyway. Because, you know, there's black Jews and white Jews and Jews from every nationality and ethnicity and speak every language at home and eat uh, every cuisine and hold uh, every passport. So, being a Jew is certainly, it's not an ethnicity or a nationality or a race in, in the conventional sense of the terms. Um, it's not even a religion because you could have a Jew who's non-practicing and they're, they're still Jewish. So how do you define Jewish identity? It's a metaphysical condition. Now, how does a person gain that status? Well, we know there are two ways. Either they're born from a Jewish mother or they're halakhically converted. But the point is it's a metaphysical status. So we're not here talking about the fact you know, that uh, you know, oh, Jews are smart. Even though I think statistically speaking, what like the percentage of Nobel Prize winners are like something like <laughs> a thousand times disproportionate, you know, uh, Jewish winners of Nobel Prize. But that's not what we're saying. Even if even if that is a true statement, that's that's not what we're saying here. What we're saying is, look, there has to be some distinction called Jew. What is a Jew? It's not. The, it's not a genetic thing. It's not an ethnic thing. It's not even a religious thing, meaning what religion you practice, because you could, God forbid, practice another religion and still be a Jew. God forbid. But it's a metaphysical condition. However you want to define Jew, you can define it, but be my guest. But here, what we're talking about is somebody who has the presence of Jewish spiritual anatomy, Jewish spiritual hardwiring. And the Jewish spiritual hardwiring is <clears throat> that they have two souls, and one of those souls is a soul of klipa, but that klipa is klipas neiga, and therefore it has good and bad traits. He says, in contrast, the souls of the rest of humanity. They're from the other klipas, not klipas neiga, but the other klipas which don't have any good. Now you're going to say, hold on a second, I meant non-Jews that did have good. Okay. Okay, so let's slow down. First of all, there is definitely such a thing called Tzadik Uma Sa'ilam and Chassid Uma Sa'ilam. The Rambam speaks about it in terms of uh, halacha. 
So there are uh, exceptions of very noble people who are, who are not Jewish. What we're talking about here is a general categorical status. That to say that automatically, just by dint of their membership in this spiritual nation, it's not a real nation the way, you know, it, or it defies categorization of nation the way we normally use the term. But to say that this idea that someone automatically has this klipas noiga, that even their klipa is klipas noiga, that's uniquely Jewish. Of course there are non-Jewish human beings whose klipa is also klipas noiga. But it's not by default. It's, 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 it's an exception. Now, you may even argue that today, in today's day and age, that the exception is more prevalent than the rule. I, I have no proof for that. I think people in general are kinder and more humane today than they ever were before. So I think that lawlessness and cruelty were more the rule in the past in human history. Today, they're more the exception. Again, I have no proof for this. Maybe I shouldn't even be saying this, but I believe that today most, most of humanity, Jewish or non-Jewish, do have a certain native kindness that's just natural to them. But I don't know that that was always the case throughout history. And that's what the Altareb is speaking about. He's speaking about the fact that it's not the default. It's not the default that you can just assume that a person is a good person. At any rate... Let me, let me take another approach to explaining this. What the Alter Rebbe is saying at this point is no worse than what a humanist will say about himself. Basically, he's saying that human beings are just animals and they do what's good for them. And they don't really have the capability for altruism. What's the Alter Rebbe saying worse about human beings than any good humanistic, uh, atheistic, uh, you know, than, than any secular uh, approach says about, about uh, human nature? What he's saying is that human beings are, are out for themselves. And even when they do good, they're doing it because it's self-serving on some level. And self-serving could even just mean I get to feel good about myself. I'll tell you very quickly a story that actually happened to me where I learned... You see, I, I, I always struggled with exactly what this means. And, and I told you, one of my ways of understanding it is that I, I do think today's day is an exception in, in terms of the timeline of history, I think that there's a disproportionate amount of genuinely kind human beings today more than ever. And I think it's because we're closer to Mashiach, whatever. But that's something I can't prove. That's just a, a personal feeling I have. Um, but as far as understanding the words here, when the Alter Rebbe is saying that, that the rest of humanity, they don't have good, the default is not good, and, 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 and he says, let's just continue the line here. If they do any good, it's only self-serving. means for themselves. 
Or like it says in Proverbs, that when the nations, meaning when humanity does good, it's actually reckoned like a sin. Not that it's literally a sin, obviously. It's speaking homiletically here. It's not really a sin. It's chesed. It's a good thing. But it's relatively a sin. Why? Because all the goodness that they do, it's only self-serving. It's only for self-glorification. So I was struggling with that. And I had an incident. I experienced an incident that really clarified it for me. I was on a radio show, on a panel, and the topic was the golden rule. And the host had different clergy from different world religions. I was the rabbi representing Judaism, and they had different world religions. And so he asks, why should you do unto others as you would have them do unto you? And the first one they asked was the Muslim. They asked uh, the imam. And he said, well, because even though it's difficult to be kind to everybody, but the reward in the afterlife is so ample that it's definitely worth it. So I, I don't know a lot about Islam, but from what I do know, it, that sounded pretty accurate. Like he, they picked a good guy to represent his religion. You know, that's what the, you know, they believe, that the, the reward, and we also believe, Lahabdal, in the reward in the world to come, right? But, so his explanation, why should he be a good person? Why? Because of paradise. Okay. Then they asked the Buddhist. The Buddhist was like, well, if you don't be good to people, you won't get away with it because there's karma and it'll even out. So what's the point of trying to get away with anything? You just got to, you know, just uh, don't, don't make any waves. And I thought to myself, I don't know a lot about Buddhism, but what little I know, that act, it sounds like, again, they picked a pretty good Buddhist to represent Buddhism right there. Then they asked the Christian. It was some type of Protestant. I don't remember which denomination. And he's like, well, you know, I was at a protest the other day and I was thinking this very question because I was thinking, what's the point of my being here? Am I making a difference? And I realized, well, you know, I, the reason that I'm here at this protest is so I should know that I took the right stand on the issue. And that's why you should be a good person, so that you should know that you're a good person. And I was like, oh, okay. Like, again, I don't know a lot about Protestantism, but, you know, it sounds like he's probably a Calvinist, right? Some type of Presbyterian, Calvinist, whatever. I should be a good person, so I should know that I'm a good person. Again, they picked a good guy to represent his religion. The next guy was the, the ethical humanist. The ethical humanists have a church where they don't pray. They have a, a, a house of worship. They get together. They don't worship, though, because they're, they're humanists. And they, they study philosophy and ethics and they discuss about being a good person. So they asked him, why should you be a good person? So the ethical humanist says, well, it's very simple. Uh, if I do whatever I want to do, you'll do whatever, I whatever you want to do, and there'll be anarchy. So for the preservation of, of society, for the greater good, everybody has to sort of hold back and uh, defer to others. So they come to me and they ask me, what's the Jewish take? Why should you be a good person? So I was sort of like, I wanted to be amusing. I didn't want to just, you know, say a regular answer. So I made a quip and I said, because I was listening to the previous answers, so I said, so essentially the question is, what are the self-serving motives for being selfless? Which I thought was kind of cute. Like, it should at least elicit a chuckle. And the guy's like, yeah, go ahead, Rabbi. But he, so I, he didn't get the joke. So I, I, did, I broke the first rule of comedy, which is, you know, if you bomb, don't just repeat the joke. But I did it. Because I wanted him to get it. I said, so basically, <laughs> you're asking what are the self-serving motives for being selfless. He's like, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead, Rabbi. 
And I just realized at that moment that we were like having two totally different discussions. Mm -hmm. And I realized these people, their self-serving motives are not disgusting self-serving. It's not like they're saying, I want to be good so I can trick people into trusting me and then I'll, you know, rob their home. No, all of their answers were somewhat refined, some more than others, but some of them were even downright spiritual. Like they had reasons why to be a good person. The Jewish question, why should you be a good person, though, ultimately is unanswerable. What do you mean, why should you be a good person? You need a reason? You need a reason? And it's funny because we, we believe in some of those things, you know, the, the, the Muslim believes in afterlife. We also believe in afterlife. But that's why to be a good person? That's why? That's the reason? That's not the reason. So when he says that they do it for themselves, for themselves doesn't have to be the most brute expression of self-interest. It could just mean that, I don't know, because I want to be a moral person. Mm -hmm. Oh, you have a reason. You want to be a moral person. Okay, and so that's what he's saying. He's saying that the default is a human being will be good because they have a logical reason why to be good or an ideological reason why to be good. It's uniquely Jewish to say, I don't know, this is just, this is just what I do. Now, are there non-Jews who could also do that? Yes, of course. What he's saying is what's unique and unusual and peculiar is that you'd have a whole nation of people whose default is that. And that's what he's saying. So essentially, what we have at the end of chapter 1 is this assertion that you have, and we don't even know about the second soul yet, but you have this soul, which is an admixture of good and bad. It has certain pro negative proclivities, which are identifiably negative traits. It also has certain instinctive good traits. Nothing noble about it because it's purely instinctual, okay? And, and, and it's keeping your body alive. That's what we know at this point. That's what we know at this point. Now, just so you don't leave with like an open loop and then it falls apart on you, in chapter 2, spoiler alert, we're going to introduce the second soul and we're going to explain how it is in conflict with that first soul. Good? Okay. Oh, the radio host, whatever, he got frustrated. I got frustrated and he went to commercial break. <laughs>